going to talk a bit about worship, something we do each week, something that is really the most important thing we do every week. Let's see which one of these works. Huh? Uh, as I mentioned in the announcements, um, Jonathan Cruz did an excellent class on hymnody. If you didn't get an opportunity to sit in on all three of those classes, encourage you to uh, go back and listen. We really need uh, courses like that uh, more frequently, not only to remind us about uh, the forms that we use, the, the, the text that we, and the tune of, of, uh, of hymns and, and, and also psalms, but, uh, but also how to sing them. And he did a fine job, a superb job, so I uh, want to encourage you to go back and listen to that. Uh, what we'll do now for the rest of May is uh, expand our scope on worship a little more broadly and talk about the whole worship service and what I hope that there's a lot that we could uh, cover uh, in just three classes, uh, but what I hope to do is in one of the classes, maybe next week or the following week, uh, talk a little bit about the Reformation and, and specifically uh, what Calvin did uh, with regard to reforming worship and uh, worship, the worship service in Geneva. What a lot of people don't know is that uh, for Calvin, worship was actually the most important thing to uh, reform in the church. We tend to think that the Reformation was all about uh, you know, the, the solas, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, you know, the doctrine of justification. And indeed it was. That was a major part of the Reformation. What we sometimes forget is uh, the soli deo gloria. Uh, We talk sometimes about sola scriptura, that we went back to the authority of Scripture, not the authority of the Pope and the Cardinals, but the authority of Scripture. But soli deo gloria... uh, Living to the glory of God is supremely done in worship. And uh, when, when Calvin wrote uh, his great treatise, The Necessity of Reforming the Church, uh, he put worship number one. So we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. Uh, today what I'd like to do is just talk simply about our worship service, uh, the different elements, the different parts, uh, what are we doing, why do we do it, what are the principles of uh, of worship, what regulates the worship service, that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, maybe the, the best place to start, there's a lot of places we could begin, but probably the best place to start is Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Where, if, you, if you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, uh, you know that it is a long sermon letter. It was, uh, these, these letters were to be read in public. And this is a lengthy one. Uh, If you read through the book of Hebrews in one shot, uh, you'll be thankful for your pastor's 30-minute, sometimes 35-minute sermons, because this one takes longer than that, and it's very cerebral, Uh, but it's rich and good. You know what Hebrews is about. These were Christians that were Jewish by blood and had left Judaism uh, for what is really the completion of Judaism, Christianity, professing faith in Christ. They were experiencing persecution. They were tempted to go back. Uh, to, to renounce Christ and to return to Judaism. The writer, who we don't, whom we don't know, um, I don't believe it's the Apostle Paul, because he uses a 
little bit different Greek, and, and uh, he doesn't identify himself the same way as Paul does in his letters. Whoever it is writes with apostolic authority and tells them to keep believing that Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. And so he goes through all of that, the sacrifices, the priesthood, uh, how he is prophet, how he is king. And he comes up then to chapter 12, which is this great exhortation. And he says, you know, beginning at verse 18, how you haven't come to Sinai and the doom and darkness and gloom of living under uh, the Mosaic Covenant. You've come rather to Zion. The, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, has been given to you in part through Jesus Christ. You've come to the fulfillment. And he goes into this rich exhortation, but I want to draw your attention to verse 28 and 29. Therefore, having said all of that, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Acceptable worship. Now let's think about that for a minute. To whom must the worship be acceptable? To God, right? That should be pretty obvious. But the fact is that nowadays, you know, in the, 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 the full marketplace of churches, um, what is considered acceptable is often based on what the consumer wants, what you like. What kind of a church do you like? Now, it may be that we like psalms and hymns and Reformed liturgy. I do. I've come to like it. I didn't like it at first, uh, you know, 15 or so years ago. Uh, I've come to love it. But that really is not so important. It's not about what I find acceptable. It's about what God finds acceptable. And that's very different in the way that we approach worship. Uh, worship services are often nowadays more about pleasing ourselves rather than pleasing God. And it's become common for them to entertain the audience and to look a little bit more like rock concerts or motivational seminars rather than the holy worship of the triune God. Uh, And it's very important that we remember that, that uh, our worship service with its Liturgy, which just means order of worship, is something that should conform to Scripture, be regulated by Scripture, and also fall in line with the pattern of the historic Christian church. There's an attitude nowadays uh, that C.S. Lewis called Uh, chronological snobbery. Basically that, well, we know much better than people in the past, and we can't really gain anything from them in the past. Sure, for 1,900 years, the New Covenant Church worshipped very plainly uh, with just word and sacrament, psalms and hymns, but we know better now. We live this side of the Beatles, and so we should bring rock and roll and bring more entertainment into the worship service. And uh, really, this is the way, the way it is. Uh, I, had, I had lunch this past week with a, a local evangelical pastor who invited me to lunch and thought, I want to get to know him, and, and uh, very nice guy. Um, we were just sort of exchanging a little bit about 
who we are and what we do. And, and then he asked me, uh, do you lead worship? Or no, no, who leads worship at church? Now, what he meant by that was, who plays guitar? Who leads the people in guitar playing and in the singing? Now, we can talk about music instruments. I'm happy to get into that and, and guitars and what's right and what's wrong and all of that. We can talk about all that. But uh, what, what, there was a lot of disconnects, actually. We were actually talking. It was like dancing with somebody where you couldn't really you know, get the rhythm. Uh, but it was really nice. Uh, conversation, and I said, well, I lead worship, but, but it's not the way you think, uh, and had to explain to him that the worship, we see worship not as, you know, the 45-minute warm-up, you know, to get the people of God all, you know, ready so that they can be patient and sit and listen, you know, to a message, which is what it's often called, um, not a sermon, that rather uh, we see the whole service as worship. And our view of the service, in fact, is different than, uh, than maybe what you think. It's not just us serving God, although that happens. It's also God serving us. And I actually lead them and the people of God in worship, kind of as it's been done through the whole historic Christian church. Um, and we sing together. We praise God. We listen together. We confess together. There are all these movements to the worship service that, again, are not only biblical, but are also part of the historic Christian church. When I say historic Christian church, here's what I mean. If you go look at the services in the 1500s during the Reformation, what would you find? You would find a service that looks very much like ours. If you went and looked at the services in the first few centuries, the oldest evidence that we have of liturgies, People like Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Cyprian, the, okay, the patriarchs, the early church fathers, we have their liturgies. Guess what they look like? They look like the liturgies of the Reformation. For, for 2,000 years, God's people have started a worship service with a call to worship. There's been the reading of the law. There's been confession of sins. There's been a sermon. There's been Lord's Supper. There's been a benediction at the end. There's been psalms and, in some cases, hymns and a confession of faith. Those things are 2,000 years old. Any church that does not have those things, like the church that I grew up in, there was no benediction. There was no reading of the law. There was no uh, weekly supper. Uh, there was no uh, conf corporate confession of sins. Well, that church has actually deviated from the historic Christian church. It's a novelty. And then to act like, well, but this is better, well, that's what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. Well, I'm, it's like, the, it's like the, you know, the kid who leaves home because he, at 18, and he's convinced that he knows better than his parents do. And, uh, and it's only a matter of time before we realize how much our parents were right, right? I think the old saying is that a daughter knows that her, by the time the daughter knows that her mother was right, she has a daughter of her own, right? And uh, it's true. No offense to young people. It's just, um, you know, the frontal lobe hasn't developed completely until your 30s or so. And basically, I mean, I'm, I'm there. I'm there. You basically have brain damage until you're about 30. And uh, it's true. Yeah. Did the reformers have access to those liturgies? Yes. 
Absolutely, yeah. Did the reformers have access to those liturgies? Yeah. In fact, um, a guy by the name of Hugh Oliphant Old uh, has written so much on reformed worship, and he did his uh, doctoral dissertation on the patristic roots of reformed worship. And what he does is he shows how uh, Calvin, Bootser, uh, Musculus, all these guys that were the, the heavy hitters of the 16th century Reformation that they not only conformed everything to Scripture, but they deliberately went back and looked at the early church liturgies for the purpose of showing that they were not innovators and doing their own thing. They wanted to show that things like statues and pictures of Jesus and rosaries and the confessional with the priest, that all of those things were innovations during the Middle Ages, that it was actually the, the uh, medieval church of Rome that had innovated and that they were just going back, uh, reforming, you know, again, not revolution, revolutionizing, but reforming the church to scripture and to what we had from the, the early church fathers. It's amazing, actually. If you go to, if you go to Italy uh, and you go and see uh, all the big churches, if you go, for example, to Milan and you go to the cathedral there, uh, it's gorgeous, and it's, um, I mean, it's just breathtaking. Uh, those of you who have traveled there, you know. I mean, it's like walking into something from Lord of the Rings. But there's idolatry everywhere. Okay, now, why? Well, because when was that thing built? It was built during the period of the Counter-Reformation. It was built as a monument to show the power of Rome against the Protestant Reformation. If you take the little tour guide, pay the five euros or whatever, you learn all that. And, uh, and there's all kinds of things there. I mean, they've got, the, they've got relics. They've got uh, embalmed bodies of the, of the saints. Across town, if you go to uh, Ambrose's church, which is still there, the church that Augustine was baptized in, that church is much older. It predates the rise of the medieval church. And guess what you find inside? The building's very plain. It's not as big of a tourist attraction. The aesthetics are not that pretty. It doesn't have all of the... It has a little bit, but not very much. It's pretty plain and pretty simple in the architecture and in uh, uh, the forms that they use for worship. Uh, it shows really the difference in a period of, of many centuries how idolatry had, had risen. But we're getting far ahead of ourselves. Um, liturgy. So what's acceptable to God? That's the question. And where do we find a liturgy for the New Covenant? Uh, well, we could spend weeks going through the Old Testament and showing how God takes worship very, very seriously. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12, when it says in verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire, why did it say that? You know, that seems kind of odd, right? Give God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is holy for our God is majestic, for our God is... But he said, a consuming fire. Why? Well, what would that have meant to the Hebrews who knew the Old Testament Bible? They would immediately have thought of something. What? Nadab and Abihu. What's the story of Nadab and Abihu? Jason, you remember? They offered profane fire. They were priests who did something unauthorized, who innovated, who said, well, I'm going to tweak this a bit. And God said, don't do that. It won't be good. And, and, and so what did he do? Did he say, okay, guys, next time, don't innovate. 
I was really serious when I said that. Um, what did the holy God, the God that we prayed to today, what did he do to those two priests who basically, they just put a little different fire in their censer. What did he do? He killed them. Fire came out of heaven and he killed them so that we would get the message. Now, whether we like that or not, whether we're comfortable with that or not, totally irrelevant. It happened. It's a fact. The Bible tells it to us. And so we have to, we have to receive it as historic. And then you have in the New Covenant uh, uh, worship being, uh, or we're called to worship that is acceptable to God with reverence and awe. Reverence and awe is what should mark our worship, as well as joy, which we'll talk about, but it must always have reverence and awe. For our God is the God who killed Nadab and Abihu when they did what they wanted in worship. As I tell children, God is fussy about worship. God, in other words, he, this is very important to him. The first commandment was have no other gods before me. The second was don't make any pictures of God. Don't make any pictures of God. Don't make anything that you bow down to, and you bow down to me, so don't make a picture of me. And that, as we would argue, includes the incarnate son, which is why we don't have pictures of Jesus. He's God. He's the one we worship. So God is serious about worship. And uh, if, if we go into a, tr- a worship service and uh, it's not serious, then something's wrong. Now, that doesn't mean it needs to be somber and sad, but it should be serious. And that doesn't mean that there's no place for humor. God includes humor in his, in his word. Uh, we are humans. We're not to only have one emotion. But nevertheless, there should be a tone of reverence and awe that, that really overrides uh, everything, or rather uh, undergirds everything. And uh, this is what should be in our liturgy. By the way, everybody has a liturgy. You don't go to a liturgical church. Every church is liturgical. Liturgical Liturgy just means order of worship. When I was in Calvary Chapel, we had a liturgy. It was five minutes of uh, announcements. It was about 40 minutes of a band really rocking. And they were good. I mean, the one that I went to, they were really good. The guy is now the worship leader for Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, which is like as high as you can go. And, uh, and then there was an offering, one more song, and the, um, the message, uh, which was about, I don't know, 30 minutes or so, and then one more song, and that was it. That was a liturgy. The question is not, do you have a liturgy? The question is not, are you liturgical? The question is, what kind of a liturgy do you have? Is it one that is focused on me and what I find moving and appealing and acceptable, or is it one that is focused on God and what he finds moving and appealing and acceptable? That's really the issue. And in the Reformation, uh, this became uh, quite a, a bit of debate, an important point to, uh, to uh, talk about, and... Oops talking about the Reformation, the regulative principle of worship, which we sometimes call the RPW for shorthand, was stated in the Reformation to be only that which God has 
commanded in his word, may we do. This is how Calvin and the reformers understood it. Slightly different than Luther. Luther said, whatever God doesn't forbid, that we could do. Which would include monkeys, juggling, clowns. I mean, does God forbid those things? I mean, you can see the door is open to anything. And uh, you guys laugh. You guys, maybe you think I'm being too pejorative about monkeys, clowns, and juggling. You know, it's because maybe you're sober now from being in a Reformed church. Uh, if you go back and to find what's going on out there today, there are local churches here with the pastor coming into the service on a zip line, riding his Harley up onto the stage. It's nuttiness that's going on, sheer craziness. And uh, we'd, it's pretty simple. All we need to do is follow worship that is regulated by the Word of God. What has God's Word commanded? What He has commanded is that there would be word, sacrament, uh, the communion of saints, which we call the fellowship, and the prayers. Those four things. Anybody know where in Scripture we would find that? Yeah, Bob... Guys, such a great pinch hitter. It's just so clutch. He comes through and... Uh, Acts 2.42. What does Acts 2.42 say? Well, Acts chapter 2 is, you, you know, the great event where the, Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit is poured out on the new covenant church, okay? The old covenant has, has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And now the gospel is going out to the nations. And so at the Feast of Pentecost, one of those three annual feasts that everybody from the Roman Empire who was Jewish traveled to Jerusalem to be part of, they are there and they hear the apostles preaching in different dialects and languages that these people understood, which were native to the towns and places from which they came. And they're saying, what in the world is this? And Peter stands up and he says, this isn't new wine that the guys are filled with, but the Holy Spirit. Uh, the gospel is now going out to Jew and Gentile. And he proclaims Christ. When you're filled with the Spirit, what do you get? You get a redemptive historical sermon, uh, which is Christ, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. That's how the apostles preached all the way through Acts, the resurrection being central. And uh, then they, they're cut to the heart. They say, what shall we do? He says, repent and believe, brothers, and be baptized. Okay. Acts 2.39, the promises for you and your children as many far off as the Lord our God will call. Uh, they are, and 3,000 or so are added to the church. And then what happens? Acts 2.42, and they continued steadfastly in apostolic doctrine. Didache is the word, which includes teaching, preaching. Just like Jesus said in the Great Commission, go, go and teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you. They continue in the fellowship Okay, which isn't just idle chit-chat over coffee, but means ultimately being one in Christ. When we confess the faith together, we are, we are expressing our fellowship with one another, our unity with one another. The breaking of the bread, the definite article, the, which we see unfold in the New Testament, and it's basically shorthand for the sacraments. It's not the same thing as breaking bread together in each other's houses, which has no definite article, and that's later in the chapter. Um, and the prayers, definite article again. 
which would mean prayers of confession, prayers of uh, illumination, prayers of uh, intercession, uh, all of which, by the way, are found in the Reformed and the ancient liturgies, even prayer of illumination. Word sacrament, fellowship prayers, Acts 2.42, that's the closest we get in the New Testament of a liturgy. Uh, Then what you have is these things being identified really as the elements of Scripture, or the elements of worship. Those things which we must do, and the only things that we are allowed to do in Scripture. The elements. And what happens in this liturgy? God speaks to us, okay, in word and sacrament. There is a a vertical conversation going on in worship. God summons his people together. His covenant people. The people of the new covenant uh, uh, for whom Christ is mediating. And he renews that covenant again. Uh, every week as he assembles his people, just as he would renew the old covenant again and again. He speaks to us through word and sacrament, through these two things, and we speak to him in prayer. And the prayers would also include singing. Our hymns and our songs, our, the psalms, uh, they are lifted up to the Lord. Now, as, as Jonathan was pointing out last week, they have a, a secondary effect also that Colossians talks about, uh, that we teach and admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, okay, letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly, which is why we should only sing psalms and hymns that are truly canonical and biblical. Not, not just beautiful, it needs to be biblical, um, And by doing that, what's happening is that not only are we being edified, but ultimately we are singing like children to our Father. This is what happens in worship. It is not a horizontal conversation so much as it is a vertical conversation. Yes, there is a a sense in which, you know, as I hear the people of God singing, I am being edified. You know, there's that horizontal sense, but that's secondary. What's primary is this. God stooping down to us, serving us, which is why we call it a divine service, bathing us, if you will, washing our feet. Just as Christ set aside his garments and washed the feet of the disciples the night before he was crucified, uh, he continues to do that through word and sacrament. And then we don't wash him, but rather respond in our prayer, in our singing. And of course, then with lives of gratitude, uh, because the means of God's grace and word and sacrament empower us then to live that life of gratitude. But the only thing that should be happening in this conversation are the elements of scripture or the elements of worship. And the elements of worship then are those things that you find uh, here in the worship service. So you have a call to worship. Uh, that is God speaking to us, right? The call to worship, just as he does all throughout the Psalms. Sing to the Lord. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Okay, oh come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, Psalm 95. The Psalms are filled with calls to worship. And then what's an invocation? We rise as God's people. 
God has entered in to the room and assembled us together. We rise and uh, we respond by invoking his name. What does that mean to invoke? You invoke something. When somebody says, well, I'm invoking a law or... Uh, you know, in sports, somebody invokes a particular rule. What does that mean to invoke? What's that? Yeah, to call forth, to call upon. Uh, You're calling upon the Lord, and that's a prayer. We are invoking God. We are saying we are your covenant people, and we are calling upon your name now. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth, Psalm 124. It's to call upon the name of God. God then greets us. Okay, it's again his word. And what is that greeting that he announces to us? Okay, when we come into worship, why does the minister raise his hands and say something like, uh, people of God, your Lord greets you, saying grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Where do we find those words? Was that? the beginning of almost every epistle. See, we should know this stuff. We need to know why we do what we do. Because if we don't, our kids won't. And then our kids will say, well, that's boring. Who wants to do that? I can go over here. It's awesome. Pastor rides on a zip line. Or if he doesn't like that, he'll say, well, okay, I don't want that craziness. But I at least like, you know, a hip place with people my age dim lights and good music because we haven't, we haven't taught our kids why we do what we do because maybe we don't even spend time to know it ourselves. Why does the pastor say those particular words? He only says in this church maybe three different formulas. Grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Does that come from Calvin? Does that come from Luther? That comes from Galatians chapter 1. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness and the ruler of kings on earth. Where does that come from? The book of Revelation. Grace, mercy, and peace be multiplied to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. First Peter. The, the New Testament books begin with a salutation. God's summoning his people. And so we're summoned. See, it's important for us to know this, loved ones. It's important, because if we don't know why, you can trace any denomination that has gone south, there's some place in its history where there was a disconnection between knowing why we do what we do. For after a while, people just didn't care or didn't teach it to their children, just like in Israel. And then there's an apostasy, there's a slide, and uh, we need to know why we do these things. So there's a salutation, God speaks to us, Hands are raised. Why? Why are the hands raised? Where does that come from? Well, that comes from Scripture. That comes from Aaron lifting up his hands, pronouncing the benediction. A salutation is basically the same thing as a benediction. It's a blessing, an announcement uh, that you are coming not on the basis, you're not coming to God on the basis of your own merit, but on the basis of God's grace. And so Aaron lifted up his hands to the people. And he announced to them, you know, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This is what God's people have done. Who else lifted up his hands and blessed them as he departed? 
the Lord Jesus in Luke 24. And so the minister now doesn't do it with any magical powers. He simply does that as an act of being the servant of God's word, bringing God's announced blessing to his people. And when did that start, the hands lifting up? Again, it goes all the way back to the earliest uh, of liturgies that we can find. The hands being lifted up uh, as a posture of God saying to his people, you are mine, and I love you, and you come on the basis of my grace. Okay, we only have maybe a couple more minutes, so um, we'll get through the rest of the liturgy uh, next week, and then maybe the week after that we'll talk about Calvin. But real quick, uh, these elements that I talked about, word, sacrament, fellowship, prayers, if those are the only things we're allowed to do in worship, how do we justify so many other things that we do? In other words, what's so holy about 9.30 a.m.? We set that time. Should there be a piano or an organ or a harp or a guitar? Should there be, uh, what should the minister wear? What should we wear to worship? Well, stay tuned, and we'll talk about those things next week because there are good answers, and uh, those are important things for us to think about. But I see we're past the time now, and so um, to be merciful to the catechism teachers, we'll, we'll stop here. Let's pray.